Let's begin today by discussing and exploring a very interesting psychological phenomenon that we all experience as human beings. It's so common that as soon as I start explaining it, you're you're almost instantly going to relate and go, yep, I remember there's times that that has happened to me. So imagine yourself, you're sitting in your house in your favorite chair or your desk or dining room table and you're sitting there and maybe you're reading a book or a magazine or, or, or you're on your laptop or mobile phone. Now, you're not really aware, but your senses are actually constantly just taking in data. You're reading or, or checking Facebook with your hands and you're feeling uh, uh, the pages of the book in your hands. Your fingers might feel the smoothness of the glass on the phone or the keys of the keyboard, whatever it is that you're checking Facebook or Instagram with. Now, research shows that if you're touching a certain surface like a table made of fresh timber and a piece of information is shared with you, then a couple of days later, you, you can't remember the information. If they then take your hand and, you, and lay it on the table of fresh timber, uh, you will more likely be able to recall the information again. You'll be able to remember what the information was because it's directly connected to something called sensory stimuli. So you're sitting there back to your back to your favorite chair or your desk or your dining room table or your couch and there is a noise or a soft breeze outside there's the smell of 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 cooking in the kitchen coming from the kitchen and and you may not be really aware of these things uh but they're in your peripheral vision you're not you're just focused here really really reading your book or checking your computer or your phone but this in this entire sensory stimuli is surrounding you and as you're reading or whatever it is that you're doing you develop a mission in your in your mind an idea and you and you think i have to go do insert whatever it is i have to go do something so you the first thing you do is you get up out of your chair and you begin to navigate your way through your house in the general direction of your mission is. You head down the hall and maybe into a room or outside into the garage and then and then you say something to yourself like, what did I come here for? What was it that I came here to do? Can you relate to that? It it happens more and more as we age, doesn't it? The older we get, the more, you know, post-it notes or reminders we need, right? But you, you've experienced this, haven't you? We go somewhere in our house and we forget whatever our mission was. And when that happens, what do we do? Well, usually we retrace our steps. We will travel back to the place where we first thought of whatever the mission was and we'll pick up whatever it was that we were doing to help us in some way to remember what that mission was. Relying on the senses of what we were doing before when that triggered our memory. What we're relying on technically is called a memory trigger. That is, I'm hoping that the sensory stimuli that I had at the time of the thought will trigger that memory of what I, I went on my mission for. That's how all of us are wired as human beings. We're all, we all experience life in this way. For example, when I was when I was a little boy, we would we would visit Nana and Grandpa, and there was this was a special event, uh, as I'm sure it was for you guys or, or for your children. Because around their house, they had a, a, a great many activities and, and different things. And it was a different environment. But for me and my brother, 
when we'd go visit Nana and Grandpa, there was a lot of things to climb around their house. And I loved that. There was this rocky retaining wall across the road. There was this satellite antenna nearby and, and many, many, many different trees. And my brother and I would go out adventuring and exploring and climbing and letting our imaginations run wild. We would go for walks, day trips around their place. And when we came home, my brother and I would play with a huge pile of Lego and Nana would be in the kitchen making a signature dish, uh, which was Anzac biscuits. Now, there's nothing quite like freshly cooked, warm Anzac biscuits with a glass of milk, is there? And there's not a time that goes by when I, when I enjoy an Anzac biscuit that my mind isn't reminded of those awesome times spent with Nana and Grandpa at their place with, with the family. The family meals together, the games my brother and I would play around the house, the huge amount of love and contentment in my Nana's eyes when the family was around and enjoying themselves. I'll never forget those times, but I remember them best when I smell the scent of freshly made Anzac biscuits. When I smell that particular aroma, the memories come flooding back and a great deal of comfort and love fills my heart. Now, did you know that Jesus had a very lavish and beautiful gift given to him that was specifically calculated to set him up for comfort and encouragement and to remind him through the darkest hours of his life? Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew 26. Matthew 26 in your Bible. And we have a story of Jesus walking with the disciples to a particular town and pay careful attention to the timing of the story. Matthew chapter 26, verse 1 to 2. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings that he said to, the, to his disciples, You know that after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. He's basically saying this to his disciples. From the point that we are standing here today that I'm talking to you, it's going to be two days I will be crucified. Did that register in their minds? Well, no. They were in constant denial about the death of Jesus. Jesus says, in two days I'm going to be crucified, and they just go on their ways as if he'd never told them. He was about to perform the greatest act of love in all of universal history, and what they were looking for, or what they wanted, was this kind of kick-butt-Rambo-style God that would lay waste to the Romans, set up the Jewish Empire, and bring them to the pinnacle of political and, and military success. Jesus had entered into the world in order to conquer evil, but not with force. Jesus didn't come into the world to flex his divine muscles or force anyone to do anything. Jesus came into the world to put on display an irresistible revelation of the love of God that would voluntarily bring hearts to him without manipulation or force. So he told them, I'm going to be crucified in just two days. Remember, just two days from now. Now, in the next couple of verses, uh, Matthew's going to use a particular technique in his storytelling here. And it's called a looping technique, where the storyteller tells a story from a particular perspective, and then the story backs up and reveals what's happening from another perspective in another part of town or village or whatever. 
two separate stories are being told and at the same time we're expecting something to happen we're expecting them to eventually converge together to combine into one story so matthew goes from a conversation that jesus had with his disciples to verse 3 which is a different location where simultaneously something else is going on across town so matthew 26 verse 3 to 5 it says this then the chief priests and the scribes and the elders and the people assembled at the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So you see this looping technique that Matthew's used here. There's Jesus with his disciples prophesying his death in, an, in a part of town, and the, here in another part of town, the chief priests and the religious leaders of the people are planning to take Jesus by trickery and crucify him. Now, I want you to note here, I want to say in passing that according to this text and many others in the Bible, that religion is the most popular place in the world to hide from God. Here are these leaders in the religious uh, uh, context here, serving God in inverted commas, as they plot the murder of God. In their perception, they were in worship mode or serving the Lord. Simultaneously, they were actually plotting the death of the Lord, Jesus. Now, Matthew takes us back to the first loop of the story. In verse 6. Verse 6, when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, I want to pause here for a moment. Is Bethany a familiar town for Jesus? Well, yes, it is. He's been there before, right? Why has Jesus been there before? Is there somebody that Jesus knows there? Well, yeah, there are lots of people that Jesus knows there. In particular, there is a, there is a, a person by the name of Lazarus that we might recall from other stories and his two sisters, Mary and Martha. They live in, in a home, and according to the Gospels, Jesus would actually come and rest and hang out with this family. He would just kick back and chill at this, in this home with these three individuals. These people were close friends of Jesus. In fact, Lazarus was one of Jesus' best mates. But he's not in town this time to visit Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. Jesus is there to visit somebody called Simon the leper. So who's Simon the leper? Does Jesus have history with Simon? Well, yeah. And the, and the obvious context is that he was a leper, but Jesus healed him from leprosy. So what was Simon's role in the community? Well, well, he was a leader. He was a Pharisee. He was a religious leader in the community. He had leprosy at one stage and Jesus heals him. And Simon is throwing Jesus a party or a feast. And Jesus has been invited to the party as the honored guest. I'm sure if you or I were healed of leprosy or some other debilitating disease, we would also throw a party for Jesus and everyone to celebrate a monumentous event like that. So here's Simon as the host of this party. He's the guy throwing the party for Jesus because Jesus had healed him. And Jesus with the disciples enters into this house and they take their positions around the table at a party. And if we fill in the blanks of this story with some of the other Gospels and some information taken from the book Desire of Ages, we also discover that Lazarus is at the feast. Also an honoured guest because recently he'd been raised from the dead and, and that too deserves a party, right? So Simon seats Jesus as an honoured guest and you can picture it this way that 
that there's Simon, the master of ceremonies, the host at the head of the table. And then to his right, you, he, he most likely has Jesus uh, there as an honored guest. And on his left, he might have Simon. And what are parties like? Well, there's chatter, there's, there's noise, there's aromas, uh, there's food, there might be music, there's laughter, there's conversation. All of these kinds of things are taking place. Now, picture all of this happening. Picture this room. There's just sort of a, a low tone of background ambient noise, just party noise. And there, there are people laughing and, dr and drinking uh, drinks and eating and, and just generally having a good time. Then all of a sudden, a faux pas occurs. An awkward moment occurs. Matthew 26 verse 7 reads this. A woman came to him, Jesus having an alabaster flask of very costly, fragrant oil. What's just happened at this party? You know, it's a small town. Do you think they knew this woman? Well, yeah, they know her. She's a common fixture around town. They know who she is. She enters this party and you don't really get the impression that she's invited, do you? She just kind of comes in and suddenly people might be nudging each other going, hmm look who's here it's her it's her this is awkward and she comes over to jesus and verse 7 says this having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table now picture this very costly oil and it's and it's trickling down through Jesus's beard it's oil and it's in his beard and it's in on his clothing and Luke's gospel says that she basically douses him with this oil and everyone you can imagine everyone is just silent at this stage watching this take place asking in their heads what is going on what is she doing Luke's gospel tells us that Simon is thinking certain thoughts He's thinking, if Jesus was really a prophet, you know, I mean, prophets know things, right? They know stuff. And, and if he was really a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is that touches him. And the emphasis on, on that word, touch, she's touching him. She, not just anyone, but she is touching him. And this ought not to be so because she is a particular type of woman and, and the particular type, kind of history that everyone in the town knows about. No wonder the room is silent at this stage. And Jesus is just kind of sitting there receiving this oil on his head and it's trickling down through his beard and onto his clothing. Now Luke's gospel says that when she gets down on her knees and begins to pour the remainder of the oil onto his feet, she then dries the excess with her hair. We have to understand this is scandalous behavior. This is absolutely scandalous. If that happened today, that would be scandalous, even today. Simon is thinking, what in the world is going on? If he were really the son of God, if he, would, if he were really a prophet, he wouldn't let her touch him. And if we read the story with some perception, we have to ask the question of Simon. Well, Simon, how do you know what kind of woman she is? 
And in Desire of Ages, it actually suggests the most scandalous of all scandals that this Simon, this religious leader, sits there in a state of judgment against this woman that he knew what type of woman or what manner of woman she was because Simon was the, the man, the person in authority, the religious leader who had actually been the one who first violated Mary. And that had then set her up for a meltdown of shame and guilt that led her to look at herself and feel dirty and defiled. For her to feel that there was something wrong with her. And so she began to give herself away for money because she couldn't bear to live in the sight of God. A prolific author says this amazing insight. Uh, it says this about, about Satan. Satan holds dominion through guilt. He whispers in the depths of our heart saying, You did that and you know you did that and God can't forgive you, won't forgive you for what you have done. You may as well do it again and again and again and give up. You are worthless. And that was the frame of Mary's mind. But something had changed in her. Now she had a new boldness. Now she had a new motivation that had led her to take an entire year's wage, a lot of money. What You know, an entire year's wage today is, is estimated at something like thirty-five dollars to $40,000. That's a lot of money for anyone. And she brings it to Jesus, enduring the shame and the glances and the whispers. And she pours this flask of perfume on him, according to the story. In verse 8, the disciples even go so far as to call the action that Mary's doing a waste. They say, why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. But Jesus responds in verse 10, describing what Mary has done as a good work. A good work that she has done for me. But Jesus continues and says that Mary had a purpose behind this action. She was up to something. Jesus says in verse 12, For in the pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. That's incredible. The disciples don't believe he'll be crucified. Nobody understands what's coming up in how many days? Two days time. Peter, in fact, the most outspoken of the group, says, no way, no way, no way. At one point, Jesus actually has to tell Peter, get behind me, Satan. Nobody gets it or believes that he will die except for this woman. She gets it. She's the only one that gets it. And she's the first person who really understands the gospel. And Mary is in the process of becoming what we might call the prototypical Christian. She's in the process of becoming what God wants everyone to experience. She is living in the current of Jesus' love. And she is loving him back in a lavish and extravagant love, which the disciples call a waste. But Jesus defends her and he says, no, 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 no. It's not a waste. It's a good work. Her response to me is appropriate. It's acceptable. In fact, Jesus receives it, and through his actions, Jesus says, I like the way she's living her faith. Her spiritual experience is the real deal. 
we too might look at that her action and say, wow, what a waste. We could have done so much more with that amount of money. You know, back to the today's analogy of a year's wage of thirty-five through to $40,000. We could have accomplished so much greater with evangelism within a whole year's of wage. We could build a new section of the church. We could do this and that or blah, 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 blah. blah. That's not wasteful according to Jesus though. That's just a normal response to the caliber and the quality of love he has lavished onto her. You see, like gives birth to like. Respect gives birth to respect. Love gives birth to love. This woman is experiencing the love of Christ on a level that is moving her to act in response to his love. To the extent that we understand God's love for us, to that degree will we love him back. It's not a it's not a matter of good old-fashioned willpower. You, you know, we can't pull ourselves up enough to get elevated. We can't make promises to God and keep them. Ellen White actually describes these promises as ropes of sand. You know, we can't get a grip on, on our own and, and, and be able to keep those promises. And then through the door comes this beautiful revelation of God's love in Christ. And that love produces a response. Love begets love. And we begin to love him back. And 1 John 4.19 says this, We love him because he first loved us. We don't generate love for the Savior. According to the Bible, we are actually morally bankrupt. But Jesus, in this woman, sees something astonishing. She is doing this for his burial, and she alone is the one who gets it. Desire of Ages gives us a bit of insight into Mary's thought process. And it says this, The fragrant gift that Mary had thought to lavish on the dead body of the Savior, she poured upon his living form. She had thought that after Jesus had died, according to the customs in their culture, she was going to pour oil on his body to mask the odor of decay in the tomb. So she goes and buys this oil with the intent to anoint his body after he's dead. But then something occurs to her. The fragrant oil that Mary had thought to lavish on the dead body of the Savior, she poured upon his living form. Why did she change her mind? Well, well, Ellen White continues in Desire of Ages, revealing Mary's thought. thoughts. It says, at the burial, its sweetness could only pervade the tomb. Now, it gladdened his heart with the assurance of her faith and her love. Mary pouring out her Yes, oil in a, in a physical representation, but more in, in a symbolic representation, she was pouring out her love for Jesus. She was pouring out her love for Jesus while he was conscious of the devotion and the love was anointing him for the burial as he, as he went down into the darkest and greatest trial leading up to his crucifixion. He carried with him the memory of that deed, an earnest down payment of the love that would be his from his redeemed ones forever. Mary was basically saying this, I have an idea. If I wait till he dies, he himself won't benefit from this gift. So I will pour this all over him while he is alive. And I know that he's going to die and he's going to suffer. I believe what he's been prophesying all along. And I will be there, even if I can't be there physically or personally present to him. I'll be there with him in the oil that's going to be all over him. Remember what Jesus said. Jesus is only two days away from his crucifixion. 
that fragrant oil was all over him. And, and we're not talking about perfume that we have today that might last, you know, half a day or a day at most. We're talking about oils that seep into the very pores of our skin, the very pores of Jesus's skin and, and sticks and, and stays there and, and releases its, its uh, fragrance slowly over, over time. And it wasn't, wasn't uncommon for those fragrances to last up to a week. The fragrant oil was all over him straight through the darkest trial of his life. Jesus went from Simon's feast to the upper room to celebrate the Passover with his disciples. And he began to experience this horrible sense of betrayal that was coming at him. Judas actually gets up from the supper in the upper room and in the upper room and leaves to betray him and and betrayal is never a pleasant thing is it and Jesus sits at the table and he prophesies he prophesies that he will be betrayed and Judas gets up and leaves and Jesus breathes in that scent of Mary's Mary's oil and with every breath he takes Mary's ingenious gift of lavish love pulls at that memory trigger in his mind Judas is betraying you, but I won't. I love you. He gets up from supper and he goes to Gethsemane and he falls on the ground. And Ellen White, in Desire of Ages, when Jesus is in Gethsemane, he is he's in such agony that he's clawing with his fingers at the cold ground, at the dirt, at the gravel, as if to prevent himself from being separated even further from the Father. And he begins to be enveloped in this wall of psychological darkness, of guilt and shame right there. And he prays in agony, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, though, not as I will, but as you will. And as Jesus suffers in Gethsemane with every breath, who's there reminding him, encouraging him, whispering to him through, his, through this fragrance into his mind? Who's there? Everyone else has forsaken him. The disciples are asleep. Jesus rises then to face the mob and Judas then approaches and betrays him with a kiss. And yet, guess what? There's Mary. The mob takes him away. The Roman soldiers put a bag on his head and begin to punch him in the face and start saying to him, if you are the son of God, prophesy who hit you, who hit you. And in the enclosure of the darkness, all the suffering that's taking place, there's Mary. They take the bag from his head and they begin to spit on his face. Jesus now has blood and spit mingled with oil on his body. And they take him away to the trial and he stands before Pilate. He stands before Herod and he's finally taken to the cross and they lay him on that rough wooden beam. And burly hands hold and nail his hands and his feet and they lift him from the earth and they drop him into the hole that was prepared for, for the cross and every tendon in his body wrenches downward. The agony is so intense that it can't be described. And yet, in Desire of Ages, Ellen White writes and says that the internal agony, the psychological agony that Jesus was going through of their rejection and the lack of love that they're returning to Jesus for what they were doing, for what he was doing for them, and the guilt and the shame of their sin coming upon him, that his mental agony was so intense that his physical pain was hardly felt by comparison. 
Jesus hangs between heaven and earth, enduring this prolonged both physical but more importantly psychological agony, feeling the separation from the Father, rejected by his disciples. Jesus is as alone as alone gets. And this form of torture was specifically designed so that the victim would be would have, have to prevent asphyxiation or suffoca- suffocation by pulling up on the nails that were driven through his hands and feet in order to gasp a breath of air only to wrench downward again and with every wrenching breath who's there whispering of her love into his heart and mind mary is there and desire of ages says that not only is mary there in the fragrant oil but as jesus hangs on the cross he can see her in the crowd and as she's looking at him and their eyes meet and her his her eyes says says something to him it says i remember when i thought i was worthless i remember my shame and it was more than i could bear and you said to me i don't condemn you go and sin no more you lifted all of that shame and all of that guilt off of me and this is what it cost This is what it cost. And her eyes say the only thing that they can say. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for loving me the way you do. And Jesus wrenches up one last time and he and he breathes his last breath with the words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he dies. But here's where it gets good. They take his body from the cross and they lay it in a tomb and the blood and the wounds and the tears and the spit is mingled with that oil. And on the third day, just as Mary had planned, Jesus opens his eyes. And what's the first thing you do after you've been dead for three days? He breathes in that fragrance. The moment he opens his eyes, Mary says to him, I love you. Thank you for saving my wretched, fallen soul. Thank you. He breathes and he comes back to life. And the stone is rolled away and he steps out through the events that take place. Who is the first person there to meet Jesus when he comes forth from the grave? It's Mary. She comes to the garden and she she's there and she throws her arms around him and he says, Oh, Mary, it's so good to see you, but please don't detain me. I haven't yet ascended to my father. Jesus then proceeds to have a few interactions with the disciples and various others and then ascends to heaven to the, to the father's throne. And as Jesus enters into the throne room of the universe, the gospel of John and the desire of ages tells us that Jesus enters the throne room and all the angels get on, on their face and begin to worship him. And do you know what Jesus does? He refuses their worship and tells them to get up. Why? Because there's only one thing that matters to him. He refuses their worship because he's got one question that he must have answered first. And he says to the Father, he says to God the Father, Father, can those whom you have given me be with me here where I am? Can they be saved? Can they come? Can they be here with me? 
Did we win? Was the sacrifice enough? Was it everything that it needed to be? Can they be here with me? And no doubt the father smiles for the first time in 33 years and he says, yes, it was beautiful, son. Yes, they can come. And at that point, Jesus has the assurance of the one thing that mattered to him. The angels then get on their face and they worship him now. And he accepts their worship because now he has the only thing that matters to him. And that is the assurance of your salvation and mine. And as they worship him, Desire of Ages beautifully says, He, Jesus, did not count even heaven itself a place to be desired while we were lost. Jesus didn't even want to be in heaven while you and I were lost here on earth. And that's the end note of the gospel. To have a part in this lavish love of the Savior that produces a lavish love response to him. Mary isn't some crazy religious nutjob, fanatical, ridiculous, way over the top Christian. Mary is the only one in the gospel narrative that is revealing Christian normality. She's not some high bar. She's the real deal. Her love is lavish and it's not a waste. It's not extreme. It's the very love of the Savior flowing through her back to him, giving him the assurance that not only do we matter to him, but he matters to us. That not only do you and I matter to him, but he matters to you and me. And the question has to be asked, does Jesus matter to you? How are you showing your love for Jesus? How are you lavishing God with the love that he lavishes? to you.